Brought to you with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Compose Melbourne is a new functional programming conference focused on developing the community and bringing typed functional programming to a wider audience. It is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 29th and 30th of August of 2016. The first day features a single track of presentations, followed by a second day of workshops and an unconference. It is the new sister conference of the New York-based Compose Conference. ElixirConf is taking place August 31st through September 2nd in Orlando, Florida. Two days of conference will be on September 1st and the 2nd, with an optional training day on August 31st. The conference includes five training courses, which provide six hours of hands-on instruction. Visit ElixirConf.com to register and to find out more. Full Stackfest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be comprised of two main blocks with a gap day in between. The full agenda is out, and they will have industry leaders on stage from companies such as Netflix, Microsoft, Spotify, Pusher, Erling, Twitter, Google, and many more. And make sure to visit fullstackmaster.fullstackfest.com to check out Fullstackfest's bot that will chat with the community. Visit 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more and register. The Erling User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September, with tutorials on the 7th and training running the 6th through the 16th of September. With keynotes by Fred Herbert and Simon Paint Jones, a fireside chat with Jane Wallerud and Erlang co-inventors Mike Williams, Joe Armstrong, and Robert Verding, and the rest of the speaker lineup can be found on the website. And all attendees are entitled to participate in complimentary tutorials on the 7th of September, sponsored by Ericsson Inkista. Early bird tickets are now available and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Visit www.erlang-factory.com slash EUC2016 to register and to find out more. Strange Loop is sold out, but a number of surrounding events still have tickets available. ElmConf is taking place on September 15th, and tickets and information can be found at elm-conf.us. RacketCon is on September 18th, and tickets and information can be found at con.racket-lang.org. PWLConf2016 is the first full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri, on September 15th. PWLConf will build upon, and further, the unique experiences that the traditional Papers We Love chapter events provide. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets to PWL come for $14 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or a recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as the speakers are still being confirmed. Lambda World will be taking place September 30th and October 1st, 2016. Lambda World is the longest functional programming conference in Spain and Portugal and one of the biggest in Europe. They expect more than 350 attendees to gather together in their awesome venue, an old tobacco factory in Cadiz, downtown. The focus of Lambda World is to bring up together developers around functional programming, no matter which language they use. Visit www.lambda.world to sign up for early bird tickets, CFP info, and to find out more. CodeMesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Early bird tickets for CodeMesh are scheduled to be available until the 21st of July. But beware, the very early bird tickets sold out amazingly fast, literally in a few hours. Visit CodeMesh.io to submit your talks, register, and to sign up for email updates to find out more as information becomes available. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The UnConf brings energetic and seasoned mentors into the mountain village of Summit Pounder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into a day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. 
Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us, we have Eric Bailey. Eric, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? All right. My name is Eric, as you already know, and I guess I would describe myself as a sort of hacker. I'm very interested in programming language theory and, and type theory and so forth, and I kind of dabble in a little bit of everything. So I found your name, and again, maybe from the Closure World. I'm not sure how much, partly because your handle is different than your name on Twitter. But I mainly found out about your stuff through the tangent of the LFE, the list flavored Erlang. Seeing you on the mailing list and then seeing you in the Slack channels now that they have a Slack channel. So I wanted to at least get someone on because I've tried coordinating some others and I go add some other people on my list to get on as well. Uh, timing just hasn't worked out, but I wanted to get you on because you are also one of the people who are actually using LFE at work. So I wanted to kind of get you on and talk about LFE, but you're doing a lot more than just LFE. So why don't we give a background of your history, how you got into software development? What was that first exposure looking like? And then we can dig into how you got into the functional programming languages, because I know you've dabbled and played around with some more before even getting into LFE. Right. So as far as programming in general, I guess I've always been curious about how things work. And if I were a little older, I'd be the kind to take apart a VCR and everything. But at my age instead, I'd take apart computers and take apart computer programs. And I guess I just sort of went from there. So I ripped them apart, figure out how they work, figure out how to break them or make them do new things. And I guess that's how I got started. And then in high school, I was introduced to Perl, <laughs> for better or for worse. And I think that kind of really opened me up and maybe made me want to look for different languages. But that was kind of my start. And then as far as functional programming, I'm also a musician. I guess I've not said that. Musician before programmer, I suppose. And I got into functional programming through Scheme, through Guile in particular, from a program called LilyPond, which is used to, they call it engrave scores. So basically, it, it's kind of like LaTeX, but for sheet music is, I guess, a good way to describe it. And they've got a scripting system, I guess. You can do a lot of hacks and so forth with Scheme there. And that was kind of my first introduction into functional programming was hacking LilyPond in Dial. Yeah, I guess that, that, that was the start. And then from there, I just sort of got more and more curious. You know, a lot of people get very opinionated about Scheme versus Lisp and everything. And so I started to explore Common Lisp and got a little disillusioned there and <laughs> did a lot of object-oriented stuff for a while and then found Closure and then LFE, I guess, is the short version of the rest of that. <laughs> yeah. So relatively early exposure to Perl for, through your high school course and then Scheme through that. And you said you did some object-oriented. Was that scheme just kind of the scheme just on the side i'm playing with this and then you actually went full-time and were you doing magician full-time and just picking up the programming stuff on the side and decided you want to venture into that a little more or 
<laughs> was the musician kind of going along with software or what were you doing that kind of prompted you to go and do more of these languages just from that exposure to Perl and Scheme? And what did that path look like as you went through and have progressed in your career? I would say I'm very curiosity driven. I spend a lot of time learning new things that are arguably not at all applicable to what I get paid to do. <laughs> and so Perl and Scheme are both very hackable languages. And I think that sort of taste of the power, I guess, of language level hacking, it really got me hooked. And what I meant by doing object-oriented stuff in the middle was that I've never really been a professional musician. I suppose I play in a band now and every once in a while they pay us. But I, I wouldn't consider that a profession. And I actually worked in I worked in a field that had nothing to do with computers or music for quite a while. And then I decided, or I guess I realized that people could pay me to write programs. And so I, I ended up doing a lot of PHP and Objective-C and things like that. I, I work on iOS. And I guess that's what I meant by doing object-oriented. And I've always been sort of curious about this functional stuff on the side. And, you know, there are almost, it seems like as many languages as people that do functional programming. And there's a lot to explore. So I guess I just try to try everything I can, you know, and with the internet, everything is so widely available that I get to try a lot. <laughs> and so you're working in, you made the, you make the transition to software. You do PHP, you do Objective-C. I'm assuming that's for mobile apps or maybe desktop apps. And then you're playing with all this stuff on the side. Did you find that when you were doing this PHP and Objective-C that that style never really clicked for you after playing with the scheme and maybe even some of the Perl stuff and the way you think about problems just from your first playgrounds? Or what was that like when you were taking that transition? Was that something that you were able to hold both in your head at the same time or you kind of got into one mind and then you had to jump back over when you were playing with other languages if you've been hacking and doing stuff around there? What was that looking like? Yeah, so for me, at least, they're very, very different worlds. And so it was sort of like when I was doing the work that would get me paid, I would put on one hat. And then when I was doing the fun, functional, hacky stuff, I would put on a different hat. And for a long time, there wasn't any crossover for me. It was kind of like, oh, I have to use objects now. And, you know, I <laughs> did a fair amount of Java, too, where, I, you know, almost everything is an object. And... I guess I just sort of grinned and, and bore it. I'm not sure of the past tense there. But um, yeah, so there wasn't a lot of crossover for a while. But it's interesting you, you mentioned mobile apps. And so I've been doing more of that lately um, using Swift now. And I guess I don't do Android anymore for whatever reason. And with Swift, I found that I can sort of inject a lot of these functional ideologies and sort of make it my own and we sort of skipped over this already but somewhere along the way i found haskell and well i've not found a necessarily practical use for it you know i don't use it every day i don't build big production systems with it i found if nothing else the process of learning haskell to be very valuable to me and very influential on the way i think about programming and i guess i've sort of become a bit of an evangelist i think my boss calls me we don't have real job titles, so he calls me, uh, what is it, functional zealot, I think is my unofficial title. And so I sort of tell people, oh, you should learn Haskell. And they say, oh, you know, it's not practical or whatever. But 
I really think the process of learning it is very important, or at least it was for me. And so I, while I don't use Haskell in production, I was able to take a lot of those strategies and the, you know, the monads and everything and sort of bring them into Swift. And I found that to be awesome personally, you know, it was kind of like, I finally get to do the fun stuff and get paid for it. <laughs> and I guess it's, to ramble a bit more and to skip around in the timeline, somewhere in the middle there, I, I found Clojure, which is a reasonably functional and it's a Lisp, reasonably functional language and, you know, Lisp on the JVM. And uh, I was able to, I found a way to get paid to do that. And that was pretty cool too. Um, but it's still I guess this transitions into a next point. So, so closure to me still feels a little bit weird, a little bit lacking in some places. Without going into too much detail, there are some design choices that I find a little odd. And then I'm just not very fond of the JVM. And it seems like, while I understand the philosophy of maintaining solid interop with Java and the Java ecosystem, I find that that comes at a price that I'm maybe not necessarily willing to pay. It seems a bit heavy on the objects and the weird dot notation. And that sort of leads me to LFE. I guess I'll skip around some more. So a couple of years ago, I was working at a startup, a different place from where I'm at now. And we had to rewrite this system that we had, we had sort of adopted. And we're basically free to choose whatever technologies we want. And so we made a prototype in Node very quickly. And we needed to do some heavier, more parallel computations and so forth. So, so Node wasn't going to cut it for real, but it was a nice, quick proof of concept. And it was better than the Ruby version. And so at that time, we sort of explored these different languages. So we tried a little bit of Go. We'd heard good things about their TSP implementation and so forth. And I got up to speed with Go pretty quickly, but I didn't really like it. It didn't qu quite feel right. You know, you're talking about these different styles and how I think about programming Go is not how I think about programming, and there's a little bit too much of a disconnect for me. And I tried Erlang a little bit at that time, and it seemed very appealing, but for whatever reason, I didn't quite get it right away. And another guy on my team went with tried Clojure, and basically I think what happened was he was more productive with Clojure faster than I was with Erlang, and so I just sort of adopted Clojure. And then sometime later, I've started messing around with LFE, which seems, you know, very logical. It's, it's a Lisp on the beam. And so I get all the goodies from the beam, and then I get to write in Lisp as well. And unfortunately, you know, same kind of problem. I wasn't productive enough with it quick enough for that particular business. But over time, and in speaking with Robert Verding and Duncan McGregor, and everyone else in the community, I found a way to sort of get up to speed with it. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not one to believe in regrets, or I don't, I don't regret in general, but I really wish I had reached out to them sooner because <laughs> everything became much more clear to me almost immediately. Got a little ranty there, but <laughs> yeah. So I guess to, to go back to the original question, I think this sort of object-oriented programming and that mindset for me is like a totally separate world from the functional. I love to inject the functional programming into the object-oriented, but it seems for me there are very different ways of thinking about problem solving. And I'd very much prefer to think functionally, I suppose. And it sounds just with your history and as you jumped around from that, <laughs> if I can tease it apart, that with the scheme early on and then working in the Objective-C and Swift and some of these other things and doing some Java and whatever else that was non-functional, 
and probably even Pearl to some extent, which I can't speak to because I haven't actually messed with Pearl a whole lot. But it sounds like you actually got in early enough with some of that functional mindset that the transition from thinking in the and those other styles of either procedural or object oriented wasn't necessarily one of those hurdles that made you have to kind of say, okay, wait, what am I doing here? How is this working? I have no idea because I'm still trying to understand that I can't reset variables or do some of these kinds of things that I wouldn't be able to get away with in the non-functional languages. So it sounded like with that early exposure that had changed and informed you enough early on that there wasn't the hurdle there that most people have after have spending 5, 10, 15, 20 years doing non-functional languages. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree. If anything, I would say my experience is more toward the opposite in that whenever I had to write this object-oriented code, that was sort of a problem for me. And it came as a relief. You know, Clojure has immutable data structures, and that was awesome to me. <laughs> you know, it's like I, there's so many more things that I don't have to worry about now because I know that the value of X will always be the same value of X. Yeah, so I guess it was kind of the opposite. But I should say that learning Haskell was not the same breath of fresh air. I did struggle with that a little bit. Maybe not in the same way as some of these people, you know, the sort of stereotypical, I've done imperative programming all my life, I've had mutable variables, I know objects, and now all of a sudden you're giving me Haskell. It, it maybe wasn't quite as difficult for me as some of those people, but it was still a little bit of a mental shift and... Like I said, I, I sort of messed with Erlang and LFE a little bit and then kind of ditched it for closure for a year or two or more and then kind of came back and started talking with people and then, then it really clicked. With Haskell, I, I guess I still haven't really talked to anyone, but it was one of those things where I kind of like always thought I ought to learn it, but never really did until maybe a year or two ago. Not to say that I've mastered Haskell, but I understand it a bit now, I should think. And there's something about Haskell and, and the way that they do things there that I think is a paradigm shift kind of no matter what. Unless you've never done any programming before, I think it's going to be a little bit difficult. Is that the difference in the dynamic versus typed languages or with your background or is it something else do you think? That I think might be it because, you know, the scheme is, I don't know if there are types in Guile. I know there's typed racket, but... I never dealt with types really there. That's a bit of a lie. There are some <laughs> some type predicates for the lily pond interrupt, but it's not anywhere near the same as Haskell. So maybe that's it. And then I think also some of the the really terse syntax, which I quite like to be honest, the you know point free style. Some of the syntax differences made it a little tricky for me to understand immediately. But yeah, I suppose you're right. I really think up until then, you know, I, I mean, Java has types, Objective-C has types, but it, it's somehow it feels different. You know, when everything's an object, it's a little bit, at least for me, a little bit easier to reason about maybe than these sort of strong, more functional type systems. And yeah, I guess maybe that was the issue. But since then, I've fully embraced types. I don't know. I like them quite a lot. I'm actually trying to get a some sort of a type system for LFE going, but there are some inherent problems there due to the beam. And how did you find the purity when you were learning Haskell? Was that another stumbling block or just based off some of the other stuff that you had done with your background in functional languages, the purity wasn't a stretch? Because I've heard some people say, oh, the purity kills me in the fact that I didn't realize how much implicit state and side effecting I was doing, 
whether it's coming from a more OO imperative background or even some of the functional backgrounds that don't have the strict parity. Did you find some of that was the transition too from the difference of being completely pure with things like the IO monads and state monads and all these functors, applicatives and monad transformers and all these other words that get thrown around as part of the algebraic <laughs> data types versus, well, I passed this function in, but it's kind of not inherently pure in the same way that an IO monad is inherently pure. Right. Yeah. So coming from the various flavors of scheme and closure, I do actually, you know, in those languages, you can actually have mutable data. You can change the value of a variable. You can do bad things. It'll let you do it. But in Haskell, it's a bit trickier. And if you're going to do bad things, you have to put them in the IO monad. And so, yeah, that, that was a little bit of a leap for me. And I think you had mentioned something I really agree with there is that it made me realize how much bad stuff I was doing. Because in Haskell, you have to deal with it. You can't just sort of brush it under the rug and say, oh, you know, it's fine. I'll mutate this state and then return the value that you're looking for. And everything's, you know, it's all fine. So that was a little bit tricky, but but I appreciate that. I appreciate that strictness, and it, it sort of makes me realize that I was being a little bit lazy. And I, I guess that goes back to my point about how I don't use Haskell every day. I don't use it for in production systems, but things like that, I think, influence the way that I write scheme or closure or whatever else. I'm way less likely to use. I can't remember in scheme if it's set bang or set queue, but I'm far less likely to use those now unless I have to, you know, mutating the state because maybe I've learned new patterns or something from doing Haskell where you don't need to do that. So I, I think that's very valuable to me. And so with your background of scheme to LFE to closure back to LFE, <laughs> just because of the time of getting it and having to reach out to the community. I have seen a lot of your stuff on the mailing list because I was on the mailing list because I really like Erlang and lists are very interesting to me and the power that they provide with the homo iconicity and the like and their macro system. And I personally don't have a problem with the syntax because in general, I generally don't have a problem with syntax. So list doesn't bother me. Erlang doesn't bother me. The, what little I've done with the Haskellish languages don't seem to bother me just from a pure like, ooh, that looks funky. I don't know if I can deal with that. So the power of the Erlang and the Lisp seems interesting, especially if you could actually fold in some stronger types like Haskell. It seems like you'd have the uh, the trifecta right there. But as you go through, I noticed you were starting to pull in a lot of these ideas and Robert was doing what seemed to be a really good job of making a strong core foundation for LFE. But I'd see you on the mailing list saying, hey, there's some ideas in Clojure. How do we fold these in? Because they do actually have some lessons here. How would this fit in if I were to try and take this and use this as a library to get some of this stuff? So as you started reaching back out to them to figure out and understand and grok the LFE better, what was that transition like? Because you went from, I don't really get it. This is odd. I'm not productive to going to Clojure to finally coming back and saying, I'm going to try LFE again. What was that like? What was going through your head at the time that says, fine, this time I've actually got to reach out and ask these questions on the mailing list? What sparked that change and what kind of stuff did you get out of it specifically? Well, I think what sparked the change is I just sort of realized that I could. 
I've always been kind of a loner when it comes to music taste and like one of my only friends into computers until recently. And so I guess I just didn't know that there that there were people out there who wanted to talk about this with me, I guess. And I just gave it a try. And really, I think maybe it's two things. You know, you can get a lot from a book. And I read a few books on Erlang and sort of translated them to LFE as I go along. And that's been very helpful. But I think it's really the speed of the feedback loop that is the most beneficial, perhaps, you know, so I can go send a message on the mailing list or, you know, go out on IRC or now we have Slack and I can ask a question and get an answer depending on time zone discrepancies, you know, usually within sometimes almost immediately or within a day, certainly. And I think that alone is very helpful. I forgot now you asked. And it was just that realization of going out and deciding to either if it was finding that mailing list the first time in IRC and seeing, cause I'd seen the responses on the mailing list and they were very responsive. And sometimes it would go through and you're like, boom, 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 boom. Like it'd be dead for a day. But as soon as the question was asked, there seemed to be quick and rapid response. So it wasn't those things. It would come in bursts just based off the number of activity that people had questions to. And how did you learn to take advantage of that? Was that just you discovered it and you saw that trend and you decided to ask for yourself or you had known about it and just took the chance to say, you know what, today's the day I'm finally going to ask? I think it was more of that. And I think in retrospect, this is very silly, but I think it was kind of the sense of like, oh, my questions are going to be too dumb. These guys are talking about real problems and real questions that I don't even understand yet. And I think, you know, I had maybe this sentiment because I, I did read the mailing list and stuff for a while, sort of passively. And I think I had this sentiment that maybe I was too stupid or my questions were too dumb. And to anyone listening out there, don't ever think that that's not the case. I feel like that's one of the biggest mistakes I've made in, in this whole LFE journey was basically not reaching out for whatever reason. And sometimes people are busy or they don't know the answer or they don't understand the question or whatever. But in my experience, and I guess I'm fortunate because this is not the case for everyone, but in my experience, it's been very positive and very helpful. Even if the answer to a question is just a link and says, you know, you need to read this. That's great. And I've never been made to feel, especially not in the LFE community, but even elsewhere, I've never been made to feel like my question is dumb or that I shouldn't have asked it. And so I guess I, I would suggest to others that you don't ever think that way for yourself either. Yeah, I really think reaching out to those guys was the best thing I could have done as far as LFE is concerned. And I guess it, you had mentioned something about a strong foundation. I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit. So yeah, I sent out a lot of questions about, you know, can we pull these ideas from Clojure, for example, or, you know, what can we do to get these features in? And I, I guess I have something else to say about that too. But over the past, I guess, maybe year, I'm, I'm bad with time, I've sort of gotten to know the LFE compiler reasonably intimately. I'll touch on why in a second here, but I've sort of gotten to know it. And Robert's philosophy there is basically, as I understand it, to keep it very minimal. You know, we can have all these libraries, we can have all these features, but the core language he wants to keep fairly small and minimal. That is not to say that it's lacking in features, but just that we don't need to have everything all in the language. And it seems to me that that's not necessarily a common opinion in the programming language world. You know, you look at Clojure is growing all the time, and Haskell is pretty big. 
I guess I wouldn't complain about that one necessarily, but most modern programming languages are fairly large. You know, they've got huge feature sets. They can do pretty much everything. And that's not to say that LFE can't do everything, but I think somehow it manages to stay simple and minimal and small. And I've come to quite like that. And then as, as promised the other point, so how I got to know the compiler, uh, <laughs> I'm rambling a bit here, but so one of the features that I wanted to add, which I think would have been very helpful to me, especially when I was first getting started, but even now I find it helpful, is basically doc strings supported at the language level. And when I first came to LFE, and actually until sort of as far as released versions, it was until maybe two weeks ago or a week ago, LFE just, the compiler just ignored doc strings. You could put them as you do in common Lisp and so forth, but the compiler would just throw them out. And I thought that was unfortunate. And <laughs> for a while, it seemed that Robert didn't want to do it. And I think I misunderstood. It was maybe that he didn't have the time to implement it himself or something. It wasn't that he's opposed to doc strings. And, you know, we chatted about it some more. And we being several people in this sort of LFE community, and we kind of got a plan together. And somewhere along the line, I actually did a very hacky port of a closure tool called Codox for generating documentation. Except that Clojure has the iMeta interface and you can query the docs right there from all your bars. We couldn't do that in LFE at the time. And so I did this very silly parsing of LFE source code to grab the doc strings manually. And that's very silly, but it did get, it worked. And so I was able to generate documentation. And I don't know if it was because of that or a lot of the work that I did there was transferable into what is now the LFE doc module, but somehow we ended up putting it in the language. And I think that's pretty cool. The the tool that I mentioned, I, I've called it Lodox, like like Codox, except it's LFE, so an L. And it's quite broken at the moment, so nobody should try to go use it right now. But but now we have documentation on the language level in LFE. I guess. <laughs> I've lost the train there. And that was one of the reasons that it became interesting was seeing you and a couple of others just ask a few questions, a small community, relatively responsive. And then all of a sudden you and a couple of other people around the same time kind of just blew up with a bunch of questions and would just be, Hey, how does this work? What about this? What do you think about this? And getting and seeing the understanding of let's keep this core language small and maybe like, the closure stuff is interesting and let's keep that as a separate library because not everybody's going to want to pull in the closure stuff or not everybody wants to pull in the flavors that Robert was working on for the object oriented style stuff that comes out of common lisp or whatever it is. But here's the core, a small subset, and then you can pull the stuff in as you need. Mm -hmm. And it was just interesting to see how that gets progressed and you pull in closure because you pulled in the closure and you took some of the threading ideas and some of these other ideas that have kind of happened to Clojure and some of these other languages and have folded that back in and actually had good response and good discussions with that community. And then you also get to use it at work, which is interesting. So it's one of those things. This isn't just, hey, I'm doing this. I think this is fun because it's a playground. But there's a little bit of this is actually useful from a production level feature set as well. Yeah, definitely. And so I guess I forgot to mention that. So the reason I first looked at LFE was specifically for a job. 
And unfortunately, you know, it didn't work out at that time. But yeah, so now I do use it at work. And yes, it's not just fun. It's very practical. And I think Robert jokes that the we have a catchphrase it's for LFE. It's the best of Lisp and Erlang at the same time or something like that. And I really think that there's a lot to be said there because I think the Beam is a great virtual machine. And the Erlang ecosystem, though perhaps comparatively small, I think is quite strong and powerful. And there's a lot of cool stuff going on in there. And to be able to access all of that and use all of that and and sort of build on top of the OTP principles and hot reload your code and scale from one node to 10 or whatever without any effort. I think that's very powerful. And then to be able to do it, to, to do all of that in Lisp is, for me at least, is awesome. And yeah, it's been an interesting ride here doing it at work because, for example, throughout the time that I've been playing around with Erlang and LFE, Rebar 3 has become more popular and more stable, I suppose. And the OTP team, I think, has actually adopted it now as sort of the official build tool. I'm not sure that they're using it yet, but I think that's the plan. And so with that, with that, we needed some, some plugins basically to get LFE to work under rebar three. And Duncan did all of the groundwork there too and continues to do a lot of the work. But it's been interesting using LFE at work because as we run into sort of practical problems at work, sometimes I, I, you know, solve them. Like, for example, the compiler plugin for LFE was doing, how should I say this? I'll start the other way around. So, so kind of like make the rebar three Erlang compiler will look at the source files and say, okay, the source file was updated after the beam file. So we need to recompile. Otherwise we don't right? Like sort of lazy compiling. And some time ago, the LFE plugin for Rebar 3 did not do that. It would always recompile every file, which for little pet projects and stuff is, is not a big deal, maybe. But as my release at work started to get bigger and bigger, that became kind of more and more annoying, especially for all of the, the libraries that I'm pulling in and so forth. And so that's an example of sort of like work-driven open source development, I guess. So I really needed that sort of lazy compiling. Like if, if the source is not modified after the beam, the binary, then don't recompile. And so I added that to the compiler plugin. So basically, it's been interesting sort of meshing of my fun side projects and my personal research and so forth. And now my practical work. And I think that's awesome. I think it's great to be able to do fun stuff at work. And I think they sort of help each other out. And if you're using this in the job, the LFE community is small. It's very excited, very enthusiastic, but it's small, which means there's not necessarily a huge amount of stuff that's written specifically in LFE if you're going to go out and find the libraries for LFE. And I played with it a little bit, and the Erlang interrupt seems great from just a quick spike, quick playground kind of thing. But what have you found with the interrupt with Erlang and Elixir being on the beam and those things coming back and forth and being able to say, you know what, there's this stuff out there I could take advantage of versus the times that say, you know what, maybe I just rewrite it because I can actually do this in a Lispy style pretty easily. So what does that balance look like for I guess first, what is the interop story that you found actually working it and using it on real projects in production? And then 
what does that balance look like for when you actually go use it versus just kind of roll your own and make an LFE version of the library? Yeah. So first to speak to the interop, using Erlang in LFE is no problem whatsoever. Absolutely fine. They behave the same. The only thing is that in general, Erlang tends to follow the sort of snake case convention rather than kebab case. But that's really the only difference. So using Erlang in LFE is fine. Using LFE in Erlang, which I have had to do on occasion, is also no problem, except that you have to use the single quotes if you have a hyphen in any of your names. And there's all sorts of fun trouble if your application name has a hyphen in it. (laughs) That's a whole different story. So Erlang to and from LFE, the interop is fine. You know, it's perfect. Couldn't ask for anything more. I've had a little bit of trouble with Elixir, but I blame myself perhaps more than the language. I really am not fond of Ruby, I guess to put it lightly. And so the Elixir syntax kind of bothers me. But just as I think there are smart ideas in Clojure, there are tons of smart ideas in Elixir. And actually, the way that I ended up implementing the doc strings for LFE is hugely inspired by Elixir and how they do things there. So yeah, I, I have nothing. It's not for me. I don't use Elixir, but I think it's great. You know, there's a lot of smart stuff going on there. And I found the interrupt. So using Elixir in LFE was a bit tricky for me. And I think the biggest issue there was that you need to include the Elixir standard library at runtime. It needs to be on your code path. And I think once you have that, then it's fine. The naming conventions are a little goofy, but that's no different from kebab case versus hyphen case. It's you have to type capital E Elixir dot and then the module name or something like that. And then it all works out. And I don't believe I've tried to use LFE from Elixir, but I would imagine it would work just as using Erlang and Elixir does with the colon prefix or whatever. Okay. And yeah, that was part of it was just knowing the libraries that are out there on the rest of the beam and whether or not it's written in Erlang or Elixir, that they are, in fact, available to you in LFE. Yep. And the interop story that it takes just to be able to have them available versus having to go off and say, well, it's out there, but it's not really easily accessible or it's a pain to work around. So now I got to put these wrappers around everything that I want to do just to make it fit more this style. But it seems to be relatively straightforward from your perspective. Yeah, so I forgot the second part, so thank you for reminding me. The interop is very pleasant. For me, I guess I tend to avoid Elixir libraries just because it seems silly to me to include an entire language, the whole Elixir standard library at runtime. Well, maybe it's not very large, but just conceptually, that seems a little silly for just one library that I'm trying to use. So if it's a case of some particular task I'm trying to do and I can only find an Elixir library, then yeah, I'll probably write it myself. In fact, I think I did just that. There was a lightweight Elixir wrapper around Pandoc. So instead of using that, I basically ported it to LFE. So then I didn't have to have the Elixir standard library at runtime. And that's something I should say too, is that in my experience, I would say maybe 90% of the time, you don't need to include LFE at runtime. First of all, as of now, there is no LFE standard library. But the only reason you would need LFE at runtime is, I guess, if you're trying to compile LFE code while you're running, which I don't see much point to because you can compile it and then send the binary. Or if you're trying to use, there's 
So in Erlang, there's the IO module that has sort of the equivalent of printf functions. I'm not sure how into Erlang everyone is, but there's the IO format function. And then LFE has its own that rather than sort of pretty printing Erlang structures, it will pretty print LFE structures, which are really the same thing, but it prints them in a lispy way. And so there's the LFE underscore IO module. And if you want that at runtime, which sometimes I do, then you have to include LFE. But other than that, interop is fine. And then again, I, I've dodged it. Going back to whether I'll use an existing library or write my own. If it's Elixir, I'll probably write my own. If it's Erlang and I look through the code and I sort of agree with it stylistically and I think it does the right thing that I want, then I, I have no problem using it. I don't care so much about fancy Lisp wrappings over things. I don't mind calling functions with underscores and things like that. And so you bring up an interesting point about having to include the Elixir kernel as part of a dependency for your application when you're mm -hmm. trying to set it up and run it. But you mentioned that you don't have it in LFE. Do you do any server-side admin kind of stuff with your LFE apps? And if you do, does that mean you just bust out standard Erlang at that point and just go everything straight Erlang? Or have you actually played around with trying to include that module so you get the LFE show on things like the server? Right. So that's a very valid question. So if ever I want an LFE shell, so for example, in local development, I include LFE in all my dev releases. But in production, I feel like I don't get my hands dirty very often. And if I do need to go in and do something, then I'll just use an Erlang shell. Because to me, it's, you know, it's the same sort of principle, how I don't, I feel it's a little bit heavy handed to include the Elixir standard library just to get access to one third party library. I also think it's silly to include all of LFE just on the off chance that I may want to use an LFE shell instead of Erlang because really they're quite similar. And for quick little maintenance things or you know, every once in a while, I'll go in and dump the data or something like that or do some stack, not stack tracing, but well, I guess it's still stack tracing in Erlang. When I want to go in and do things like that, I generally just use an Erlang shell. But if you did want an LFE shell, yes, you you definitely have to include LFE. And that was one of the things I didn't even think about because from just what I've read and played with very little and tried some of the exercises, which we'll get to in a little bit, was just the fact of it all compiles down to the beam and it's all IL. And so I didn't even think about the necessity of even an Elixir wrapping it up and putting an Elixir runtime in there versus it just being a compiled kernel and not even just the application style and just having that there to be able to run it because, hey, we're just deploying Beam files and all of this stuff is just accessible. So that's just an interesting point that you bring up there. And I think that's a key difference, one of the key differences between LFE and Elixir sort of ideologically perhaps is that Elixir does have a standard library. And from my sort of limited experience with it, it seems like they flip the arguments of certain functions like lists map. They've got, what is it, enum map. And the arguments are reversed because it caters to the forward pipe that is common in Elixir. So in that case, it makes total sense. Like, obviously, you want an Elixir standard library for things like that. Otherwise, you'll be having all sorts of unnecessary anonymous functions and so forth. So it makes a lot of sense to me. And I actually spoke with or tweeted with or whatever Jose and some other people there, and they explained it to me, and, and, and it makes perfect sense for that. It's just, I find it a bit heavy when doing interop, but 
maybe that'll change. And we were talking before about Robert's philosophy of keeping LFE as minimal as possible. And as far as I can remember, I think there's likely not going to be any sort of LFE standard library anytime soon. And if there were, I think it would be separate from the language itself. And then I mentioned the playing with some exercises and playing around with LFE just to get a feel of it and what a Lisp on the Erlang VM on the Beam feels like. Aside from just some small programs, there was also Exorcism.io, and you were able to, I guess you took point on that? You were one of the, or you were at least one of the first few people that were helping to promote and say, hey, let's get LFE out on Exorcism.io so we at least have visibility that this stuff is out there for anybody who goes to that and says, hey, I wonder what languages I could play with and maybe find some new users that way. So what was that process like and what spurred the exorcism on your end of wanting to make sure it was in there? Yeah, so I can't remember how, but I came across the exorcism somehow and was working through the Haskell exercises, actually, it was my introduction. And I got a lot of great feedback there. And I found it very helpful to me when learning Haskell. And I guess I'm the sort of person, I don't know if the word is altruistic or what, but when I have an experience like that, my immediate reaction is to want to give back. I want to see what I can do to help. And I'm not sure exactly of the timeline here, but I sort of became, what do they call, admin or whatever on the closure track so I can provide feedback for closure exercises. And I think maybe I added some more and things like that. So that was all fine and good. But after a while, I basically ditched closure for LFE. And there exists an Erlang track on Exorcism, but there was no LFE. And so I approached Katrina, who made Exorcism, and I said, can we do an LFE track? And she said, oh, yeah, totally. You're like, Here's a repo. Like, Go for it. That's awesome. And so with some guidance from her and help from Duncan McGregor, we sort of got an LFE track going. And it started out, and it really, for the most part, still is a dry, like literal port from Erlang, which is not always the best. Yes, it still works because they both run on the beam. But there are lispier ways of doing things, and maybe it, it's worth revisiting soon. So I made this LFE track in the hopes that maybe it would be a good way for new people to get introduced to the language, and maybe I could provide some feedback, or whoever else can provide some feedback and get some excitement and help people learn the language. So that, I guess that's kind of how I got into exorcism, and I still mess around with the, the other Lisp tracks, but I sort of play favorites with LFE. Even though, I wonder if I can look here, there aren't very many users of the LFE track. So if anyone out there is curious, you should definitely try. I can't find the stats quickly enough, but that was kind of my thought there. Because like you said, it's, it's a very small community, and I think LFE is awesome. It suits a lot of my needs very well, and I think other people ought to be introduced to it. I'm not saying that everyone should use LFE all the time for everything, but I would love to introduce it to more people to give them a chance to see if they like it or not. And I guess that's kind of what the exorcism track was about, partially. And I just wanted to make sure we covered that as well, because that is one of those things for getting in and finding the right styles. If you kind of understand the idea, but trying to understand some of the idioms and ways of thinking other than just saying, well, I'm going to apply closure to Erlang, or I'm going to apply my Erlang or Elixir to LFE, mm -hmm. and just kind of translate syntax. 
exercises like those where you can actually get some feedback on what does this look like. We don't really have a style guide, so maybe this becomes the style guide or whatever, as well as just, did you realize you could actually take advantage of it this way kind of thing? Yeah, it's usually more like that. Or, you know, it goes both ways, too. There are a lot of people, I can't say a lot of people because there aren't a lot of people on the track at all, but a few people on there are Erlang programmers. I either know that or they've mentioned it in the comments and so forth. And it's interesting to see how they approach some of these LFP problems because it's sort of a different style. And I guess getting distracted some more, you mentioned a style guide. There actually does exist a style guide for LFE. I cannot recall where it's at right now. And <laughs> that's one of the problems that I think Robert and the rest of us maybe are going to try to work on over the summer, the rest of the summer, is to sort of wrangle the docs a bit more. That was one of the issues I had when I first started, and the doc situation is a lot better now than it was. And by that, I mean not the doc strings, but like you know, sort of the readmes and so forth on the web. It's all kind of spread out at the moment, and some of the information is a little bit outdated because some things have changed a fair amount in the language. And so one issue we've run into recently a few times is with people excited and you know they're trying to learn LFE and they want to learn LFE, but Often, I think it seems to newcomers that you have to be an expert at Erlang first. And speaking from experience, that's absolutely not the case. I sort of learn them concurrently and try to write some docs, or even if it's just an introduction or something, for each of the different backgrounds. Some people come from Common Lisp, some people come from Erlang, some people come from C, something completely unrelated. It's not that unrelated, but they come from something else or Clojure something like that. And I think it would be a fair amount of effort, but I think the reward would be great if we could sort of write some documentation about getting started with LFE and sort of cater to those different styles. So that's something I'd like to work on, I guess. And we're getting close to our time, but I want to make sure if there's anything we haven't touched on that we give you the opportunity to talk about it or at least bring it up before we start wrapping up. So is there anything we haven't left off? I know we had a couple of topics that were potential as part of a pre-show of things we could dig into if we had time or if we went down that route and it took us down that route. But is there anything we missed talking about specifically that you want to make sure we cover before we start wrapping up the call? Yeah, I mean, just quick about the docs thing. I think what would be the most helpful would be for people, whether they're new to LFE or I guess even new to programming or new to Erlang or whatever, we need those perspectives. And I think if we could have people say, somebody the other day in IRC was saying, or maybe on GitHub, I don't know. Somebody was saying, I'm trying to make a new project, a new LFE project with Rebar 3, but I don't know how to do it. And the tutorial's outdated and misleading and so forth. And we need more people like that, we being the LFE community. Because for me at this point, I do a lot of things by hand or whatever. I've sort of gotten to know the quirks and I think I sort of take some of these tricks I've learned for granted. And I think it would be very helpful to have people come in and basically try and fail publicly and then help us to fix the documentation and fix the tooling together. And that sounds like a good practice just in general is as you start hitting these problems, no matter what language you're in, to raise it, document it share what you've learned and how you got by. And hopefully someone can say, hey, there's a better way or identify that. Okay, yeah, we have a problem here. This isn't as friendly as it needed for someone who's coming in with no context whatsoever. Right. So before we wrap up, wanted to give you one little chance to talk about 
you kind of touched on it. I don't want to circle back around real quick, but just the lessons that you're learning, bringing these ideas back into other languages. You mentioned Swift and before the call, you said you were taking advantage of a lot of the Haskell style that you're able to pull off in Swift. So can you give just a quick summary of how one might approach folding these lessons back in as they're coming back, whether it's Swift or whatever, because if you're taking this Haskell learning and some of these other things in LFE and you're applying it back to Swift or whatever else it is that you might be working on, what are some of the things that you found that helps make that more successful, folding it back into your job? Yeah. So in the case of Swift, there's a library called Swift with a Z, which I guess is based on the Scala's with a Z library for Scala. But it basically introduces a lot of the familiar functorial and applicative syntax from Haskell. And it introduces some monads and so forth. You, you get either and all that. So I, I was able to, to just basically bring that in as a library into Swift and start writing this weird hybrid of Haskell and Swift. And while that's helpful in certain cases, I think it can also be a problem. I did the same thing in Clojure, and it ends up being kind of like this weird mess where in order to be able to read it, you have to know, in that case, both Haskell and Clojure. And so, you know, it kind of goes both ways. But I think what's the most powerful takeaway from just functional programming in general or Haskell specifically is I think it can really alter, if you let it, the way that you think about problem solving. And to me, that's the most powerful. So maybe, you know, I don't bring in the either monad to all my languages everywhere if they don't have it. But to me, it's more about thinking. And I often say that at least... 80% 80% of my job is just thinking, with the last 20% being writing code. And with that in mind, if I have this really powerful way of, way of thinking, this functional way of thinking about problem solving, I think that's extremely useful. I guess what I'm saying is, even if you're writing the most object-oriented Java code ever, if you sort of think functionally, I think there are some benefits there. That's more of what I meant, rather than actual syntax and everything. And that's good to keep in mind, because it's just one of those things of if people aren't actually being able to do this in the job and fold it in, just some different ways and different perspectives of being able to fold it in without getting lynched if you're trying to fold in Scala Z into your Scala or Java even, or fold in in Swift Z for someone who's just more still trying to make the transition to Swift from Objective-C and not being lynched by everybody where you're like, okay, well, we're already trying to do this. How am I supposed to like integrate everything else here that I don't have context? So that's useful to think about just the various levels of how it can be folded back in when you go off and learn some of these languages. Yeah, I guess I'm repeating myself, but I really think it's more of the thought patterns and the sort of deconstruction of the problems that you gain from the functional style, you know, functional programming that can be varyingly directly applied to all programming. Like you're saying, maybe you don't pull in your Swift Z and all that. But you can still write functions that have a single responsibility, even if they're an object method or whatever. You can make sure they do one thing. You can make sure they don't have goofy side effects that'll cause problems later on. In the case of Swift, you can, I'm not sure this is entirely true, but you can try certainly to never use the var keyword. You can always use let. You can sort of manually enforce immutable data. And I think that's very powerful. And so as we wrap up, I want to give you the chance to plug anything that we haven't covered or reinforce some of those things that we've covered. I don't know if you're going to any conferences upcoming just for people to talk to you, even if you're not talking, 
or any other projects that you're involved with. We mentioned exorcism. We mentioned some of this closure stuff. We mentioned various aspects of LFE. Do you have anything that you want to bring out specifically or reinforce for people to check out and participate in and just research more into? Yeah, well, I think, as you're saying before, the, the LFE community is very small, but very passionate, but it's also very small. And so we have all these ideas and all these tasks and everything, but everyone's got a day job. And unfortunately, LFE is a side project for, I think, everyone involved. And so the more the merrier, no matter what it is, whether it's fixing a typo in documentation or telling the world how terrible the introduction pages or whatever, or adding a, a different library or who knows, I think more people would be great. I would love to see more people using LFE and contributing if they can. But I think even using is contributing in a way. And then you had mentioned at conferences, I, I'm planning to go to the EUC in Stockholm in September. So I guess you can see me there. And as far as how to find me online, my screen name is pretty much everywhere is Y-U-R-R-R. IQ. So that's how you can find me. And I think as far as contributing to LFE, I think the best way to reach out there is either find a repo and make an issue or there's the LFE Slack. And I think maybe I can send you a link and we can put on the website or something, but there's a link you can do to get an invitation. Otherwise it's Erlang-Lisp on Freenode. There's usually people hanging out there too. But yeah, just get, get in touch or the mailing list on Google. I guess reach out. I learned the hard way. That's the best thing to do. <laughs> and then you have a blog as well, which you're posting some of your experience and learnings and updates with Erlang, Lisp, and maybe and look like even some Elixir as well from just playing around with the various stuff. So you want people to track you down there and find you because I can get links to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, sure. I'm not a very good blogger. I'm My posts are few and far between, but I can try to be better. Maybe this will give me some accountability. <laughs> And we covered where people can find you and LFE, so we'll get all those links in the show notes. So before we end and wrap up on this, do you have any call to action for the listeners after listening to this podcast? If you're interested in LFE, just reach out and get involved, whatever that means, however you want to do it. Any and all participation is welcome. Definitely. So make sure to put everything that you talked about in the show notes. We'll get all those links and links to LFE and all the other stuff we've talked about in the show notes. So we'll put that down so everybody listening can go there and find out more. Sounds great. I'd like to give you a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I'd like to thank Eric for giving us time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking to you. I've seen you online, seen you in the groups, seen you in this. And it was interesting to actually hear from someone who's actually using LFE in the real world since it is such a small community and everybody's so excited about it that it's mostly just taking up their time as their side project. But it was interesting to talk to someone who actually gets to play with it and use it as part of their day job and have, has folded it back in. All right. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.